You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. The idea is to create a place people can step into and travel. I'm in a different dimension. Whatever I'm seeing, the shapes, the ice worlds, whatever they are, I'm in different worlds because of what I can hear. And so I just lived in a very magical place, illuminating. Hello. Hello. And welcome Ladies. to Pop-Tarts. <laughs> I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors at Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And we have one of the most amazing guests we've ever had on this show. Tori Amos is a virtuoso musician who's searingly honest, wildly creative, piano-forward pop music changed the entire recording industry forever. She had her breakthrough moment in 1992 with the release of her iconic solo debut, Little Earthquakes, a record named by Rolling Stone as one of the greatest albums of all time. And she spent the almost 30 years since then perpetually experimenting, innovating, and expanding the boundaries of what popular music can be. Now she's back with her 16th studio album, Ocean to Ocean, an emotional meditation on loss and renewal that's perfect for this post-COVID time. She's been so important and influential to so many music fans over the years, but especially to women. And I cannot wait to talk to her about her life and work. Welcome, Tori Amos, to our show. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Callie. It's great to be here. As we're recording this, you're just three days away from the release of your new album, Ocean to Ocean. How does it feel to be on the verge of releasing new work into the world? Well, I'm, I'm ready now. When, when they first leave the studio here in Cornwall after they're mixed and mastered, there's always um, a bittersweet moment because only the people that have been working with them know them. And then... I realize that they're going to go make stories and have <laughs> friendships and do stuff. <laughs> and, and, um, and that's my time to say goodbye. So I say goodbye and they skip down the lane. And, and now I, I'm aware that they're about ready to make some friends and I'm, I'm excited for them. Well, they certainly made a friend in me. I love them. Thank you so much for making them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they love you too. As long as you have some, you know, tequila, they're fine. <laughs> it can be a little bit of a rough ride, but it's worth it. You know, when it comes to your career, we have to start very early because you were a piano prodigy with a full music scholarship to the prestigious Peabody Institute by the time you were five. What makes you, well, I'm sorry, what made you connect with music so early and how did you evolve out of all of that classical training into the totally unique musician we all adore today well it's a mystery knowing how i could play music because i could always play it and i hope that doesn't sound wrong but it's just i remember it like breathing mm. i can't rem i can't remember a time without it my mother tried to explain to me how she saw it 
but she she saw it because her father, I call him Papa, he would sing to me um, as a baby. And I think that's how I probably first heard music in that way. But then before I can remember, I was just playing with both hands, anything that I could hear and just copying it. It's so amazing. I've had the privilege of seeing you play live and watching you play the piano. The piano literally feels like an extension of your body, much more than almost anybody I've ever seen play. (laughs) It just seems like it's part of your hands. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you, I think if you, if you want, do you have a, do you play? Do you guys play? You know what? I tried to play. I took lessons for years and was terrible the, the entire time. So I stopped. Well, what I have found is that you need to let it play you. Mm. So once you develop a relationship with your instrument, then you get it to play you and you surrender. And that's how you start merging into and with the instrument. And then how the rhythms start to evolve. Um, And I was being taught a certain way at the Peabody, which was kind of draconian. They, I understand that they needed all of us to read music, but when I entered, I could play hundreds of songs by ear. And so in order to get me to read, they started with hot cross buns. Mm. And, and it was very difficult going from, I don't know, the score of the sound of music <laughs> to hot cross buns. Yeah. So... <laughs> I got a little bored and frustrated. And then <laughs> yeah. and then once we got into Bach, um, you know, the works of Bach and, and minuets by Mozart, then it started to shift a bit for me. And I was and I was able to in, enjoy reading a lot more and learning music. I read in Rolling Stone that you were kicked out of the Peabody at 11 for something called musical insubordination, which totally made me laugh. (laughs) What does that mean? Like, I I assume you were just like, I'm not going to do what you tell me. Is that what that means? I had been asking them to help some of us who were really interested in the contemporary music at the time. And that music was unbelievable. Late 60s, early 70s music. So I wanted them to analyze Beatles music and us really dive into it and look at what they were doing from a compositional point of view. And somebody's response there was nobody will know who the Beatles, nobody will know the Beatles in 30 years time. (laughs) And I looked at these grownups thinking, you are out of your mind. And I, I think I called him a douchebag and blew him <laughs> up with an air grenade and something like that. It didn't go well. Oh, <laughs> wow. I love that story. You know, Tori, when I hear your voice, I feel like I'm instantly transported to 1994. That was my sophomore year in college. I was 19 years old. And over the summer, I had bought that very famous issue of Q magazine with you Bjork and PJ Harvey on the cover. On my first day in in my new dorm, I pinned that cover to the door of my dorm room, like Martin Luther, just nailing his thesis to the door. I was like, listen (laughs) up, people. This is what I'm about. This is what's going on. Get with it or get out of the way. And just by doing that, I bonded with so many other passionate fans of your music during that time. But I think I can count 
on less than one hand, how many of them were straight guys? <laughs> what, what would you say it is about your music that strikes such a deep chord with so many women while also seeming to alienate so many men? Well, oh, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I really don't know the answer to that. I guess <laughs> trying to tell mm, the truth mm. about what we go through, what we think about, really unmask it and, and kind of say, okay, this is what we're really thinking about. I was trying to help. I was trying to help the straight guys out. I was like, guys, I'm giving you a how-to play-by-play. You're like, what? Monday morning quarterback my fucking ass. I'm giving you the play-by-play on how to court the chicks. And I, Definitely. I couldn't believe it. Oh, my God. I was thinking, if only I could be a straight man, I'd be cleaning up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like like that guy, Mystery, teaching guys how to, how to nail the, the most girls. Um. Something else that I remember so clearly about 1994 is that RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, which is a toll-free national sexual assault helpline, was founded that year. And you were the group's first national spokesperson, which really helped get the word out to so many people that this resource was and still is available. Just the existence of RAIN and your association with it made so many sexual assault survivors feel less alone. What do you remember about launching such an important program that is still helping so many people today? Well, I couldn't understand how, um, what was happening, which was a girl fainted at a show in the Midwest. This is 94. Mm. So she faints I see her carried away, and um, I think I'm not exactly sure if it was after me and a gun, but I get backstage and I learn that she um, said she was raped the night before by her stepfather and would be when she got home. Oh, And so she said, can I come with you? May I just, I'll do anything. I'll wash dishes in the kitchen, whatever. And I'm like, okay, we can't let this girl go back. So what are our options? And in that moment, the options were very few Mm -hmm. because I thought, yeah, let's take her. Okay. So then the calls start coming in from LA, um, you know, legal going, okay, Tori, you, you will be arrested because Mm. you're crossing state line tonight and she's underage. And I said, what? what are our options? And really there were not a lot of options right then, right there where we were. And I watched that gal walk through those doors. I watched her leave Mm. absolutely defeated, deflated. And I don't know what happened to her. I've never heard from her again, gals. And so when it was brought to me, the idea of rain, um, then I was like, I'm completely on board. I'll do whatever's necessary to, to support this organization. It's so amazing that it's still around today. Now, I feel like it's so well known. I hope that it is that people know just to Google rain and they'll, they'll be able to get a resource in their area, um, which is so important. 
But I, I definitely remember in the 90s, it was just a great big question mark. Definitely. Yeah, um, I've been into I've been into the Rain Command Center. And what I think people might find it intriguing is they have a room that is for um, civilians. So people like us, if we were to call in, we would call in and we get someone who's trained um, and they're in front of their computer. Uh, they are online as well. And they're they're on the phone. They're 1-800-656-HOPE. That's their phone number, toll free. And then you go into another room that is military. Mm. That's dealing with the calls from all around the world, all hours at night from our military, dedicated oh. to that. And just to have gone into the offices and seen how dedicated people are that work there and what they're trying to achieve was incredibly humbling. I can just imagine. You know, I'd like to shift gears now, if I can, to talk about the genesis of your new album, Ocean to Ocean. I read that you were going through a difficult time during COVID, as we all were, but then that the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, which you were viewing from overseas, really brought you to a very low emotional point that you addressed through songwriting. And the result is this amazing album. Tell me about that process and how you feel now looking back at this beautiful document of your catharsis. This was during the third lockdown in England. The third one was severe. And I think everybody had really gotten to the end of their tether, as they say. Mm -hmm. Then on top of all that, as we're dealing with COVID, the lockdown, as we're dealing with the aftermath in the States and people watching America, like a, like a type of madness was going on. I'm thinking, what are they drinking? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what is in their water over there? Be because you think, okay, you know, I've been a part of elections whereby the candidate I voted for, whether it's local or national, lost. But I respect Respected. <laughs> right. I respected. Okay, my side lost. We we have the electoral college for good or ill, and so that's what we go by. And then that's my president. I'm not. You know, I really can't stand a bad loser. I'm like boring, <laughs> boring. Yeah. You know, man up. Come on. So I was just aghast at what was going on, not only with the insurrection, but the response from our elected leaders, some, some mm -hmm. of our elected leaders, and how they were willing to burn democracy to the ground. And not only is that tyranny, tyrannical, but my God, that's, that's a traitor to the United States. And so I just thought, okay, this energy... I wrote the book Resistance. I put it out there trying to do my little tiny bit to make sure, you know, we, we all value our democratic process. And at this point, I've just hit, I've hit the wall. It's despondent. You find me in early February and I'm sitting in a chair just staring. Mm. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't shake it, ladies. Mm. And it's not like I, I haven't had therapy and tools and things, but I could not get out of it. Mm -hmm. So the muses came to me and said, okay, 
then you need to, you have to write from where you are. Stop trying to be somewhere else. And that's where when somebody would say to me, fake it till you make it. Well, I couldn't fake anything. And mm-hmm. I didn't understand that that was a mantra for those um, in, in AA, friends of Bill. I didn't understand that. I just knew that I, I had to be where I was and be honest about it. And so I began writing from that place. I feel like that's so evident. The album is full of eloquent, heartbreaking, beautiful descriptions of what it's like to have death and loss just take over your life, which so many people can relate to right now. I I will Mm -hmm. say the piano ballad Flowers Burn to Gold absolutely made me cry when I listened to it. But Ocean to Ocean is also filled with tons of water imagery everywhere. This is especially true in Metal Water Wood, which feels like the place in the album where a spirit that's totally been laid low by grief starts to fight back. In that song, you sing, these shattered dreams of mine, wash them away with the tide, metal water wood, be like water, you tell me, be like water. What does it mean to be like water? Was there a a particular person or idea that helped you turn that corner and start to rebuild? Well, at my darkest place, I started looking at fighters because I thought I have to fight this monster, this, this monster of despondency. And so I, I finally landed on Bruce Lee. Mm. And as I was, as I was investigating him, his, his philosophy was be like water. And I thought, really? Of all the things this great fighter could come up with, and I was looking for, you know, I'm looking for art of war. I'm looking for, you know, that old kind of (laughs) caper thing. And then all of a sudden, be like water. And I just sat there for a minute. And then the floodgates opened. And I began to see what he was saying, the fluidity of whatever's thrown at you, how you're able to be fluid with it, whatever trauma, whatever attack is coming, how to move with it. Mm-hmm. And it was being able to move then, move with those feelings that I was feeling. And I was finding then hidden trap doors in that feeling and then started to write myself out of it. And Metal Water Wood was the first song finished for the album. Oh, wow. That's great. Um Throughout your career, you've always had a very witchy vibe to me, and that vibe is made more explicit in your new song, 29 Years, where you sing, my witch isn't always benevolent. She used me, an unwitting accomplice, on her weapon, my fingerprints. How does this happen? How would you describe your relation to witchy stuff? Because it's telegraphed whether you're explicitly saying witchy or not. Mm-hmm. Um. It's an interesting relationship because really I'm from the fairy, the fairy faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a bit of a different energy, especially in, in Cornwall. There is a designation between the two uh, practices and energy forces and force fields. But I've done a lot of research through my life, um, even in mythology of of the witch essence and um, I'm drawn to it of course I find it I find it very intriguing 
Um, I know people that are quite involved in it, but I was coming from it more archetypally in that there is a dark side to the witch archetype. And I do believe there is a light side to the Mm -hmm. witch archetype. And so I was discovering the dark side of my witch who is quite clever and can really land me in, um, how shall we say, destructive tendencies Mm. or (laughs) self-destructive things, if you know what I mean. I do. Mm -hmm. And you think, why am I doing this? Why am I tearing this to pieces? Why, what, what is my part in this that's happening? This, whether it's an, a discussion that's gone wrong or whether they feel like I'm blocking their, their idea, what it, whatever it is, it's what am I up to? Because when you hear somebody say, I'm not up to anything. I'm completely innocent in this whole thing. Okay. <laughs> Run away. <laughs> Run fast. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, it's a well-known fact that the music industry is extremely sexist. And the women who actually do make it are often totally discarded by the time they hit middle age. What can you tell me about achieving career longevity and continuing to thrive and be creative and innovative in this kind of work environment that is stacked so much against you and against all women once they hit middle age? And you're absolutely right. I'm glad you all put it in the in those words, because you're not you're not exaggerating. Um, and, And stay with me. But yeah. the movie side of things, and I'll talk about this with actors who are and playwrights and who who can be really fair and objective about it, and not just say, "Well, we should have." Blah, 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 blah. When we're comparing the the fact that they cannot replace Helen Mirren with a thirty year old, no, even <laughs> even though no. I think there's studio heads and agents and and directors who would if they could, so they could stare at the hot piece in the room. I'm serious. Mm-hmm. But they can't. They can't because the public won't allow a woman of that age to be played by a 30 year old. They won't allow it. Mm-hmm. What the public, because they'll talk to me about sometimes and go, Tori, I didn't really think about it in these terms. What the public is not drilling the music industry down on is why are you putting these women to pasture? Wait a minute. Why aren't I hearing so and so from 95? 98 what Mm -hmm. happened to her and i say what do you think they all married billionaires or became (laughs) billionaires and are just waltzing around their palaces what what do you think that they don't want to play music not one of them no it's an absolute part of the music industry culture it's a takedown because they don't want to renegotiate the contracts they don't want the powerful women who know how to get through menopause they don't want the secrets of female empowerment told through the songwriting, through those stories. They don't want that. So they find ways to just put those racehorses, let's call us, into a pasture, <laughs> into mm-hmm. a pasture. And I thought, no, 
I'm jumping over this while I still can. I'm breaking out of the corral and I'm heading for the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I mean, I think that it's true of all industries to a certain extent, but definitely to yours most extremely. I mean, e there's even the fact that when women have a certain amount of career longevity, they demand more money. And when and labels just would rather pay much less for an up and comer than someone who has established themselves to the point where they are asking for what they deserve. That's um, right. Yeah. That's right. And, and they'd rather that. So they're fine to, to allow a young artist to run quote unquote her course mm -hmm. um, and not, and not keep nurturing this artist to have the 30, 40 year career, but the boys club looks after their own. And, you know, some of my brothers that are still, that were out in 90, the early nineties and are still out now. Yes, they're talented, but I'm going to say it. They've been given so many opportunities. Mm -hmm. They get the big jobs. They get the big mm -hmm. movies. They get, I'm not saying they haven't worked for it, but I'm saying that boys club protects its own. And it's those of us who know it, who know it, I'm not going to walk on eggshells about it. And I'm, I'm very fortunate, though, to have a fan base um, that support that support what I do. At, at any point, would anyone suggest that the Rolling Stones or Bruce Springsteen are too old to be out entertaining people? Like, absolutely not. It's just it's a double standard that makes me crazy, obviously. Exactly. It's you're absolutely right. And I'm not saying that those guys sh shouldn't be performing because I love watching them perform. I think they're brilliant. But it is something whereby I think that the public has more power than they know. It's just asking the question of how is this gaslighting happening? How does this keep happening? Because it keeps happening. And then I I, I don't know, I, I see in a small town that somebody who made many records that people adored once upon a time, they're playing a venue of 300 people mm -hmm. and, try, and, and taking in a band with them and, and having to afford to do that. And I'm going, this isn't the dream. That isn't the dream of what they had when they were selling those records and, and they were having that moment. They were hoping to have a 30-year career. That's mm -hmm. what you think. So it's it's just, I think, if, if the public is aware about how the industry operates, then we can be more conscious and more, and more aware of our artists as they as they get older and, and grow with them. Yeah, I hope to do that as much as I can. And like we, I think, especially with social media, we can all speak up and say like, why aren't we hearing more from this person? And that somebody mm -hmm. somewhere will see it if there's enough people and enough hashtags. Um, we're in sort of a strange democratization by social media in that regard, mm -hmm. maybe. I went to school in Holland in 1995. And I traveled all around Europe during that time and wherever I traveled, but especially in London, your music was absolutely everywhere. Every place I went, they were playing your music. The Brits really seemed to catch on to you in a very intense way. And I know your husband is also British. Is this part of why you eventually decided to move to England and build your recording studio there and become an expat who's in England so much of the time? 
Maybe. I think uh, Mark really wanted the studio to be here because he understood how things operate. He just said, I've grown up in the music industry in Britain. He had worked in all kinds of rehearsal rooms in London, and he worked at Chapel's Music in the recording studio there as a sound engineer and had been out with, with um, Brits. So I think he understood he was working with SSE, the equipment company that we still work with. And so it was really about if we were going to build a studio, because um, he has to run it, I'm not technical in that way, then where would it be best? And he decided England. But we couldn't agree on what side of the river, because he's south London, see, he's south of the river, and I was always north of the river. And so we couldn't agree. And so he said, okay, let's go to Cornwall. And mm. I said, okay, okay. <laughs> You know, I, I don't know if you observed it. I'm, I'm a little unclear still about whether it was just my perspective as a Tori Amos fan traveling in 95, or if it was true that England was like a hotbed of Tori Amos activity. You were touring at that time. Did you experience that or was I just observing it? No, I think the Brits, the Brits were very welcoming. There's no question without the Brits, then my career wouldn't have taken off. That's completely true. So they they seemed to get it. They got behind it. And, um, you know, they were loud and proud. And I'm so <laughs> grateful to them for it. I didn't understand their humor for the longest time. It took me a long time to get what are they banging on about? But finally, I, I was able to get their self-deprecating, sometimes gallows humor, and um, once I got it, I just thought, God, I love these people. <laughs> you know, I almost hate asking this next question just because nobody ever asks male rock stars how fatherhood has influenced them as artists. I don't think I've ever heard anybody ask that. But I really, really loved your duet, Promise, with your daughter Tosh on your 2014 album, Unrepentant Geraldines. Can you tell me anything about your relationship with Tosh from a creative standpoint and how that's evolved now that she's 21? Um, she's on this record on the first three songs. So she's the Devil's Bane Choir. Oh. So we've worked together now on the last few albums. She's She's been helping out with the vocals. And it's great seeing her grow in the studio. She has ideas. She has thoughts. Um, she's very much the witches on the first track. She's like this Celtic by the cauldron singing in addition of life, life, sorry, addition of light divided. And um, yeah, working with Tash is always illuminating. She, her tastes are her tastes in music. She's, she's clear about that. She likes what she likes. Her boyfriend is uh, a student over at Guildhall. He's, a, he's studying jazz. He's a bass player. And the two of them are so funny because half the time they don't agree on the music <laughs> that they like. They just He's into drill and bass. She's not. And so when he's playing me drill and bass and we're having some margaritas, she's like, okay, go into the gym. See ya. Um, so it's really, it's really fun sharing music with 2021, 20, 21. He's going to be 22. Um, 
they play me and Mark stuff all the time that we've never heard of. And, and that's, that's how we kind of know what's happening. Thank heaven. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the final song on ocean to ocean is a very surprising tango called birthday baby. And it sounds very much to me like a mother's advice to her daughter about surviving heartbreak. Am I picking up on any of your inspiration for this very wise and optimistic finale to the album? This is this was written for our niece Kelsey, who's 29, Kelsey Dobbins. And the first song was written in her honor as well. So, yes, I think she was in New York City for the lockdown and we were missing her grandma, Grandma Mary, my mom. We were going through some of the same kind of grieving feelings. Mm. Um, and we would FaceTime and talk to each other quite a bit. And I guess, at, yes, at a certain point, I began to see that there was a gift I could give her. And the idea that sometimes, really, you you have to see who you are and accept yourself for that and it's so easier said than done but that's why the line sometimes in life a girl must tango alone mm-hmm. what if you find you like to tango alone <gasps> well then happy birthday <laughs> <laughs> i was just listening to that and thinking i had the most apocalyptic breakup of my entire life when i was 21 and like i just wish i'd had that song in my arsenal of healing because it really took me a very long time <laughs> it can can it yeah it can we we've all faced heartbreak in our life at some point and it can really be devastating and and what are those things that get us out of it i mean that's why i I think we we make art. That's why you all do your podcasts and you write and you do what you do. And I write songs because the idea is to create a place people can step into and travel, even if they're not leaving their seat. They're with you. We're in the center of the galaxy. Now we're dancing in the streets of New York with a steady lamppost. We're, We're under a sultry night and we're dancing alone and we are fine. (laughs) <laughs> I love yes. it. Yes. <laughs> um, I love it. Tori Amos, are you a feminist? I was born a feminist with a capital <laughs> F. Yes. <laughs> of course. Yes. I'm so glad to hear my hu- it. My husband, my husband's a feminist. My yeah. husband. So was Jesus. I love Jesus. (laughs) He has some definitely feminist things to say. I agree. Yeah, I love Jesus. Jesus is great. If the world was more like Jesus, things would be much better. I believe that. And Mary Magdalene would be around. How nice. (laughs) (laughs) How has your feminism impacted your career or vice versa? Hmm. Uh, Well, you know. The, the tough thing in our industry is when you get when you get labeled, you know, Tauri can be difficult. <laughs> it's like, no, is that true? Am I more difficult than the guys or right. am I just going to be pedantic and not let you wriggle out of this? You, you can't just 
like steal my masters and take take the drums off and put out of time drums on because you're some shit hot director <laughs> because you think you're God. And yet you don't have a musical bone in your goddamn body, but everybody's blowing smoke up your ass because you're a great director. Well, but you're you're musically inept and you suck. <laughs> OK, so was that difficult? But if somebody stole your masks, what would you do? I mean, some people would eat them for breakfast, but I'm not a cannibal. So I just <laughs> use words instead. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to imagine that now you have your own studio. Like you're not putting up with shit like that anymore, are you? No, but but the other thing is, ladies, it's, it's about then being able to work with people who respect that, who want to mm -hmm. work with you because you do know what you're doing. Because you do have a spine and because you will tell them, okay, let's try this idea. I'm not going to block you on it, but, but okay. I don't know if this idea is going to work. Okay. Let's try a kazoo choir. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And maybe it will be, maybe it will be better than Bach. Let's just try it. But it's finding people who really want to work with people that know what they're doing. Instead of the ingratiating, oh, oh, mighty Wizard of Oz director, how great are you? And all that ass kissing. And I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered, ladies. I'd rather, but I, I'll sit on the floor. I'll sit with everybody and work as hard as everybody else and collaborate. But, but I'm not into the, um, you know, blowing smoke crap. I'm too old for that. <laughs> <laughs> Nor should you put up with it for even a minute because you have established that your vision is the one that your fans want to hear. So whatever, whatever. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm willing, you're willing to work with people. It's just, there can be in certain scenarios, there can be a very sort of top down hierarchy of the director knows everything, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Everything about everything instead of what I, what I, do enjoy is finding those people out there that will say, Hey, come on aboard and let's collaborate and let's join forces and put our heads together and see what we can come up with. And then that can be really inspiring. Yes, absolutely. I don't know if you've read this, you probably have, but it's been suggested that part of your early experience with music was a result of something called chromesthesia. It's a type of synesthesia in which sounds take on colors and shapes and movement and light in the brain. Is this similar to what you experienced when you were composing like as a three-year-old when most kids are just sort of learning how not to poop in their pants? <laughs> well, I was playing music like I was breathing and I I hope it doesn't sound awful. I know to some people it might sound awful and I apologize, but it's just what my experience was. So it was magical. It was just something that happened. Music happened and it felt like, okay, I'm, I'm in a different dimension. Whatever I'm seeing, the shapes, the ice worlds, whatever they are, I'm in different worlds because of what I can hear. And so I just lived in a very magical place. And that's that's all I knew. I didn't know any different. 
Yeah. I mean, then there's people who believe in reincarnation who point to babies who are born knowing something like that and are saying like, look, they are they have lived many lifetimes and they're still carrying (laughs) the knowledge from that. I'm sure you've probably heard people suggest that as well. (laughs) Well, people suggest different things. And I don't know the answer, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't I don't know the answer. I think something that can happen, though, is when you have kids that are good at something, then there can become an expectation Mm. of such, with a capital E, such expectation that if these things don't come to fruition as they had hoped, Mm. then the kid becomes, well, is seen and treated as a failure. Mm. And I was treated as a failure when I got kicked out of the Peabody. And my poor dad, I think it it absolutely broke his heart. Mm. Um, and so I was trying to deal with that. I felt a bit bad about it. But at the same time, I didn't think for one second I knew the Beatles would be around in 30 years. So I <laughs> apologize. I, I couldn't. Right. I couldn't. Do you have any pets? And if so, what are their names and what kind of animals are they? And what are they like? Well, Tash has been banging on about getting a cat. And there there was an internet thing like get Tash a cat. But um <laughs> but but the thing is when we got a wonderful animal, his name was Oscar, and he was a beautiful golden lab. It was her dad, Mark, who looked after Oscar. <laughs> so, and we're about to go on tour. Mm. So I, I think that if you're going to get a pet, you really need to be grounded and in a place mm. so that you're able to look after them. We're about ready to hopefully be traveling. We start the European tour in Berlin in February. And hopefully, hopefully we'll be announcing an American tour soon. Oh, yay. When you tour, do you tour with... Tash and Mark, do you all travel like a family band? Well, Mark is front of house sound. So we met, he did my live sound in 94. And then we've been working together since. Um, Tash did travel with us. She started when she was one. She was on the Strange Little Girls Tour. (laughs) And she was very good at bus surfing. She sleeps really well on a bus. (laughs) So she might pop out and see us when we're on tour because she she loves she loves the bus life. Let me tell you, I love that. Um, this is my final question, and it's the last question that we ask all of our guests on Pop Tarts. And that question is, "What you watching?" It is a broad pop culture question. We want to know about books movies, television, music, music videos, podcasts, anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know it because it is probably very, very cool. Tori Amos, what you watching? Okay, so Tash has been um, making me watch documentaries. And one one documentary that really influenced this record was Seaspiracy on Netflix, which I thought was shocking. Um, I don't know if you, if you no. ladies have seen it. Oh, wow. Yeah. What's it about? It, Tell it, me it's, all a, about it. it's a tough watch. It's about what's going on in our waters, in, in our oh. oceans. And I thought I knew what was going on, but I realized I had no idea. 
the extent of the abuses that are going on. And it's, it's a real wake-up call, but it's definitely, definitely worth watching for sure. Um, reading, I've been reading a lot about what's going on with trees. So let me get the book. Hold on. Sure. It's called um, Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Simard. Uh, she's Canadian, and it's about uncovering the wisdom and intelligence of the forest. Ooh. So she's been investigating for, mm, well, since the early 80s, I reckon. Uh, she worked for the lumber company then, and she was trying to get them to stop them from clear-cutting forests, um, thinking it would be not only beneficial to the trees, but to them. And finally, she was able to prove how trees communicate with each other. I'm really simplifying this to, to give you the soundbite, but it's an, an incredible read. And the fungi network that's underneath the trees, they call yeah. it the wood, the wood wide web, of course. <laughs> and, and it's, <laughs> so it's a great read. Um, Oliver turned me on to drill and bass during the lockdown. So I was listening to Aphex Twin, mm. Boards, of Boards of Canada, all kinds of stuff that he was playing for me. And I really, I'm really glad he opened me up to that. I've been loving listening to that music. Awesome. Well, Tori, it's been such an honor and a delight having you on the show. This, been this amazing. is a big day for us. So thank you so much. <laughs> you all are so fun and you ask such great questions. Thank you so much for having me. And and um, that hour went fast. So thank yeah, you. <laughs> and thank you for the new album. Yeah, it is beautiful, Thanks, really. Um, we're going to take the very briefest of breaks and then I'm going to come back with Callie and I'm going to ask Callie and Callie, you hopefully will ask me what you're watching, what you're watching, what you're watching. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have We all dockets. have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. 
which amazing. was so smart. I mean, so like, smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners, have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full-body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound. And we're back. Hello, Callie. Hey, babe. I can't believe we talked to Tori Amos. Isn't that something? Tori fucking Amos. Baby Callie was alive and well and living. (laughs) And living. And she gave us life. That little fairy. She's exactly, it was the exact vibe I expected. Voice, the soothing, the fairiness of it all. Yeah, she is otherworldly. And now is the time when I ask you, because I've got to know and I want to know and I need to know what you're watching. What have I been watching? My sister Kedron brought back an old school classic I had forgotten about, a YouTube short series called Adult Wednesday Adams, or Adult Wednesday, do you remember? It went viral Mm -hmm. way back in 2015, and one of the episodes went viral because it's like Wednesday Adams as a a grown person, and she moves to LA, and in the one that went viral, she... um, these like cat, she shows up these cat collars front doorstep with a bunch of creeps to creep them out. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. That? No. That's really She's like, this one over here, he just stares. And this one, he'll make noises at you or something. It's so good. And so in the other, in the other episodes, in the first one, she's like going to, to like meet room, possible roommates. She's looking for an apartment. And of course she's just a fucking creep. And they're, they're like two basics. And they're like, what is this person? And then in another, she's like on a road test and she's trying to run over people. It's so good. <laughs> it's just like Wednesday Adams, low key monotone creepiness that you would expect, but like in regular adult situations, it was such a good throwback. And then my sister told me that it was supposed to be optioned to be a, a series. I think maybe on Netflix or something, but she got a cease and desist from the people that owned a trademark for. Oh no. Right. So she lost that deal. And then when I was looking it up, the, the people that own the Adams thing, I think it's Lee and something Adams, are making an adult Wednesday Adams show and she's not even in it. Oh. Rude. I guess they own it. They can do what they want. Exactly. But they should at least like cast her because she was perfection. <laughs> absolute perfection so then i've also been watching always sunny is back for their i think think this is like the 15th year or it's i can't believe that show is still on a longest running sitcom i fucking love that show even though it's 
you know, ridiculous. But they addressed the blackface episodes where they would remake, um, what were they, what movie was it that they were remaking that was ridiculous? Uh, I don't remember the movie, but they would were remaking this um, Lethal Weapon, I think, or something like that. And they did it twice. And Mac was playing the, the lead, who was originally a black character in blackface, so obviously problematic. But then in the um, in the new series, they they address a lot of the fucking shit that they have done in the past. That's crazy, but it's satire, so they're supposed to be terrible hu- people, you know. Um, but they were like, you know, we should we should have never done blackface, and everybody's like, you're the one that did blackface. Nobody wanted you to do blackface, and then um, so then they try to cast like a local black person in in the part, and it's just you know them. So it's everything's a damn shit show, but. I do like that they did approach the situation and the guy that plays Mac, he's one of the writers and he was like talking about how, um, cause he writes for other shows too. And he's like, I find that my barometer is off for what is appropriate sometimes in some, sometimes in situations because we spent 15 years making a show about the worst people on the planet because it is satire. We lean so heavily into the idea. And, um, then he was talking about how he'll like be pitching things for other uh, shows and he's like that's just completely inappropriate that's only works because our other show is basically like cartoon people that do beyond fucked up shit but the se- the season's really good oh they also talk about the first episode is about the what they were doing in the pandemic what they all did with their stimulus checks and it's like this guy comes to check with them to see how they spent their money and basically they're like oh we were responsible for for the lost um, votes because they'd made like a fake voting box for something else. And they were, they were like <laughs> responsible for, um, Oh, what was his name that had the, the black hair dye dripping down his face? Giuliani. Oh, Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. They were responsible for that. And they were like, ended up being responsible for all of this ridiculous shit that had happened <laughs> during the pandemic. And, um, and then they also talk about um, the me too culture and, uh, woke culture it's it's you know i i always love the show so i thought i think they're doing a great job in the series of addressing all the fucked up shit from before but it's, you know it's satire so you got to give them a little bit of a leeway you know mm-hmm. or, you don't. or you can just say fuck these people <laughs> i don't like to watch a show <laughs> with either way and then the last thing i was i've been watching is the show creamery on hulu that is basically it's like why the last man but it's set in New Zealand and all Asian leads um, and the three main stars created it along with this other woman, Roseanne Ling. Um, and it's, you know, like why last man type situation, there's only one guy left in the world, but everybody thinks that there's no men and they find the one single guy. And this is, so it's eight years after the virus killed all these guys and these women work on a dairy farm sort of like a, a wellness cult type of situation. And there's like a lottery for who gets to, to be mothers. And um, so they find this, the one guy that's alive and they try to hide him and like get the sperm for him. So this one woman can get, have a baby. Um, it's funnier than, it's less serious than White Lost Man, but it's very feministy and I'm still living for it. And I like that it's all Asian leads, of course. Um, but it's definitely worth a check out, even though it's pretty much the same idea we've seen before. But it's it's, right. it's good. And the girls are much more like 
joke here. It's way less serious in content. What have you been watching, Baby Doll? Well, thank you so much for asking. The first thing that I've been watching is this show called Sort Of on HBO Max. Um, that Love it. Also, yeah, Debbie told us to watch it. It's a Canadian show that just um, came out recently on HBO Max. And it was created by, and it's starring a non-binary person named Bilal Baig. And they are starring in it as a Pakistani person who is a bartender at an LGBTQ bar and a, a caregiver for children, like during the day, like a nanny. And um, it's just basically a cool rad individual with cool rad friends and um, all kinds of drama goes down with the family that um, the main character is babysitting for. And that's like the main drama of the first season. And I'm really into it. And another thing that our boss Debbie told me I had to watch, he actually like texted me and was like, turn on the TV right now. Cause I didn't, I didn't know it was on. Um, there's that show live in front of a studio audience, the specials that Jimmy Kimmel puts on where, um, where famous actors act out classic episodes from like Norman Lear sitcoms. And so the most recent one on ABC, it was a double header of facts of life and different strokes, which are exactly my sweet spot. Like those, those were what I was watching in elementary school and junior high. And, um, those are, those are like very, very near and dear to me, both of those shows. And um, on the Facts of Life reenactment, um, Jennifer Aniston was in it as Blair. Gabrielle Union was Tootie. And Katherine Hahn was Joe. Allison Tolman was Natalie. And my very, very favorite, an alumna of this show, Anne Dowd, was the most amazing Mrs. Garrett. She was channeling Mrs. Garrett. It was so deep and so real. And she actually had to do double duty because... Um, Facts of Life is a spinoff of Different Strokes, so Mrs. Garrett is in both of them. So I got a double dose of Dowd, which was amazing. This sounds awesome. Oh my God, it was so good. What? Where can you, I mean, you saw it on live, but does it- I saw it on ABC. Like you can see it on like, you know, the ABC streaming. Yeah. And then on Different Strokes, um, besides Ann Dowd being there again as Mrs. Garrett- it starred Kevin Hart as Arnold because he's so tiny oh <laughs> and Damon God. Wayans. Oh my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. And Damon Wayans was Willis and John Lithgow was Mr. Drummond. And it was just like hilarious. I loved it. Kevin Hart. And, that's so good. And the other thing that I watched was I, I rewatched fight club on Amazon prime. This is mm-hmm. one of these movies. Like I knew that I liked this movie, that it was sort of like bedrock 90s pop culture gen x like i i knew that i i see i saw it in the movie theater when it first came out but i can't remember if i've watched it since then but very recently i've been feeling some type of way and often i'll wake up in the morning and i just started to notice that either i felt like ed norton or i felt like tyler durden but i it could like switch from day to day and sometimes from hour to hour. And sometimes when I, when I'm feeling very erratic, I'll just stop and I'll be like, okay, am I being Brad Pitt right now? Am I being Tyler Durden or am I being Ed Norton right now? (laughs) Um, So, 
anyway, like I, I'm not like I'm not having a nervous breakdown, but maybe I am. And so I wanted to watch Fight Club, and I did, and I enjoyed it very much. And um, I enjoyed Helena Bonham Carter as Marla Singer again very He's much. So good, I, yeah. I would like to see a girl version of Fight Club at some point. And I know that there was one kind of that we saw, but that's not really what I mean. I mean, like psychologically, I would like to mm-hmm. see. Um, because that was the only thing that I didn't like about it, except for I didn't really dislike it so much because I forgot. Like, I am not a Brad Pitt person. I understand that there are many Brad Pitt fans out there. I'm not one of them, but I do wow. love him in this movie. And What's when the he is in here, I'm sorry, I need to understand your reasoning. Brad Pitt's amazing. I don't know. I just find him to be very blank. Like, I don't I don't see anything behind his eyes for some reason. But for in Fight Club, I thought that was really good. And his body <laughs> in Fight Club is so ridiculous. There's this scene where he's naked and he gets out of bed with Helena Bottom Carter and they don't show his wang or anything, but they cut it off like just at the pubes. And like, I, I was beside myself. I couldn't handle it. And I'm not used to obsessing over Brad Pitt. Like I'm more of a Jason Momoa kind of person, but oh my God, that was well, doing it time for, for I've got time for both of them. <laughs> yeah, just bring it. Um, So that's what I've been watching. And then the last thing that I've been watching, of course, is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page that we have launched because we need everyone's help to keep Bust alive. And hopefully you'll be interested and excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for our Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what every single celebrity and what we have been watching for all 121 episodes we've also got totally ad-free episodes there's exclusive content on there like our amazing episode with big frida and much more please check it out at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast finally i would like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer logan del fuego muy caliente logan and our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rams and on Instagram at Rams Emily. You can email both of us. I'm at Emily Rams at Bust.com. Callie W at Bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at Bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. (laughs) That was a weird one. (laughs) Once you develop a relationship with your instrument, then you get it to play you, and you surrender. And that's how you start merging into and with the instrument.